this evening's talk um, is called A Solar Buddhism. And I'll explain what that means. We've learnt a lot in the last um, years from scholarship um, that has sought to clarify the conditions under which the Buddha taught in India in the 5th century BC. We have a much clearer idea now of the, of the intellectual and religious uh, milieu in which he, he taught. Sometimes traditional Buddhism imagines the Buddha as this perfect being who kind of comes from nowhere and then just speaks in a sort of vacuum out of his perfect enlightenment. Whereas I think nowadays that sort of idea is very difficult to, to accept. The, the Buddha, like Christ or any other such figure, is both a a creature, a product of his place and time, and yet also often a very severe critic of that place and time. There's this uh, inevitable tension. We also have been used to the idea that the Buddha was a a critic of the Brahminic tradition, not Hinduism as we know it today, but the kind of religious culture that started in the Vedas and was further developed in the Upanishads. And it's widely accepted that the Buddha rejected the caste system of the Upanishads, that he rejected the belief in the world being the creation of a deity. Um, And he was constantly critical of the Brahminic society of which he was a part. But this picture is now being very um, much questioned. Particularly a book that was published a few years ago by uh, a scholar called Johannes Bronckhorst uh, called Buddhism uh, in the Shadow of Brahmanism. It's a somewhat academic book, but it's quite readable. And you can download it for free on the internet, <laughs> legally. What, um, what Bronckhorst uh, uh, proposes, and I think the evidence is quite strong, is that the Buddha did not grow up in a world that was Brahmanic. In other words, he didn't grow up in a society which, was, um, which understood itself in terms of the four castes. He did not grow up in a world in which he would have been educated by Brahmin priests in the wisdom of the Vedas and the Upanishads. That in fact at that period, in the 5th century BC, the Brahminic culture had not yet spread that far east that the Brahmins and their traditions and their form of society and the Vedas were predominantly established in the western parts of India, the northwest, uh, in modern-day Pakistan, and had not really spread much further east than the modern city of Allahabad, which is on the juncture of the Ganges and the Yamuna rivers. Nonetheless, there were wandering Brahmin priests in the area. The texts, the Pali texts, also speak of, of uh, Brahmin villages, <coughs> So it wasn't completely cut off, but the important point that Bronckhorst makes is that the society in which the Buddha uh, grew up, in which he taught, had not yet been Brahminized. The norms of Brahmin thought, of what we loosely call Hinduism, had not yet been established in that part of India. Now, if that's the case, then it no longer makes sense to think of the Buddha somehow as a rebel or a critic of the Brahmanic uh, society of his time. And if that's not the case, then what kind of society did he grow up in? What were his, uh, what would have been the kind of religious or spiritual 
beliefs that would have informed him as a young man. It seems on the basis of quite a bit of evidence that the Buddha grew up in a culture that worshipped the sun. And in one of the earliest passages, this is in the Sutta Nipata, uh, in the Pali Canon, before the Buddha becomes the Buddha, he's described as visiting the city of Rajagaha, and the king, Bimbisara, um, goes to him and asks who he is, who is, because he's rather impressed by this young man. And the Buddha describes himself as being a citizen of Kosala, which was the kingdom to the north of the Ganges, belonging to the clan of the Sakyans, living on the foothills of the Himavant, in other words, the Himalaya, and belonging to the lineage of the sun. Now, rather than um, reject his indigenous or native religion, he, I feel, actually um, uh, expanded it from a local animistic belief system, which literally worshipped uh, Aditya, or Surya, the sun, um, as was the case, I think, in many agrarian societies that were completely dependent upon the warmth of the sun in order for their crops to grow, and so forth and so on. But he turned the sun into a symbol for nirvana. He universalized the idea of the sun from a literalistic uh, concern with the source of light and heat to um, an idea that what he was teaching somehow uh, allowed us to live in a more solar way. If you go to the uh, British Museum and you go to the collection of Indian art and artefacts, I think it's room 35. In one of the cases, um, there is displayed a bas-relief, in other words, a, a carved clay or cast clay frieze, about, about a foot square. And you have um, uh, a throne behind which you have the Bodhi tree. To either side you have an attendant, a, 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 a sort of male figure. And on the throne, you have a sort of caricature image of the sun. It was characteristic in the early Buddhist community not to represent the Buddha in the way that he's represented now. It was this figure behind us. That came about 500 years later. And the Buddha image, which is so ubiquitous now, was actually modeled on the Greek god Apollo. Um, as a result of, of Greek settlers in northwest India converting to Buddhism. But until that point, the Buddha was only represented symbolically as an absence, sometimes just an empty throne, sometimes a fair of footprints like the one we have in the, in the shoe area outside, two big footprints, uh, sometimes as a stupa, in other words, a sort of a tombstone really, uh, a funerary reliquary, and very occasionally, in fact, I've only seen this once, as a son. But we also know from the text that the Buddha is referred to frequently as um, the Aditya Mita, the Aditya Bandhu, which mean the friend of the son, the kinsman of the son, these are epithets that we found in the Pali Canon. And even when I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk, um, I knew that the phrase Nime Nyen, kinsman of the sun, referred to the Buddha. This is, is well known. There's also a passage um, in the Sanyutta Nikaya where the Buddha um, compares the... Um, the Kalyanamita, which means the, the good friend, which 
we would maybe sometimes translate as the spiritual friend or the um, basically it means the one's preceptor or teacher or guide. He compares the the good friend uh, to the rising sun, and he says, just as the sun at dawn rises above the horizon and illuminates the landscape, so. Uh, the person who guides you on the path, your, your good friend, is one who illuminates the Eightfold Path, who sheds light on the Eightfold Path, makes the path, as it were, visible. You can see it now. And then directs, as it were, his or her instructions towards your, your cultivating this Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path um, is in many ways the Alpha and the Omega of the Buddha's teaching. Uh, Quite literally, the very first thing he says in the very first discourse is that he has awoken to a middle way. And then he says, what is that middle way? It is the Noble Eightfold Path, which is true vision, Thought, speech, action, livelihood, mindfulness, effort, concentration. And then when he's on his deathbed, um, 45 years later, um, one last follower, a man called Sudatta, comes to see him and be received into the order of bhikkhus. And after having been accepted, he asks the Buddha... You know, when you're gone, how are we to recognize or know what is a teaching that is genuinely yours? And the Buddha's answer is, wherever you find a teaching on the noble Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path, I feel, is not just the way to nirvana, which is the way it's normally presented, but as I mentioned in my talk the other night, the Eightfold Path, this way of life in the world, comprising all of these elements of our humanity, is what is grounded upon the experience of letting go of greed, of hatred, of confusion, uh, seeing, as they say in Zen, one's original face perhaps, experiencing nirvana, experiencing the world as profoundly contingent uh, and conditional. And there is uh, a number of passages, well, really just a couple that I've found, that suggest very much that this experience that we spoke of uh, the other day, uh, of seeing this ground of our life, um, is again, metaphorically, understood to be like the sun. Uh, there's one passage, which I'm not going to go into in detail here, but where the Buddha um, reassures his cousin, Mahanama, that um, uh, he need not worry about the kind of uh, suffering or illness or death he might experience because his mind inclines towards nirvana, much in the same way that a tree that is leaning or inclining towards the east when it falls, will fall towards the east. And the east is, of course, where the sun rises. So in this sense, um, nirvana um, is understood to be somehow similar to the experience of the sun. Uh, This is curious because in a lot of Buddhism, Nirvana is compared to the cool light of the moon, a lunar image. Whereas, in fact, in these fragments we find in the early texts, it suggests that Nirvana is more like the sun. So how might we understand that? If we think about it, um, in the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, the absence of confusion, we don't just arrive at a kind of a blank 
like we could say that the Statue of Liberty, as I mentioned the other night, could be in nirvana because there's no greed, no hatred, no delusion in the Statue of Liberty. In a human context, uh, when those particular conflicting emotions either die down or no longer become determining of one's life, then one recovers what we might call a radiant kind of equanimity. Um, Radiant in the sense that uh, such a frame of mind is no longer uh, clouded or, or muddied or darkened by confusion, but it is bright. Um, and there's an equanimity there because it's no longer a frame of mind that's under the dictates of the, the pull and the push of desire and hatred. And in this sense, um, what we, in a sense, are cultivating in, in this practice of meditation is to settle or to become intimate and familiar with that kind of inner radiance of our own being, which is compared to the sun. And the sun is both a source of light and of heat. And this fits rather naturally, I feel, with the, the twin values in Buddhism of wisdom, which is like a light, which illuminates the darkness, and compassion, or love, which is like a warmth that radiates uh, to those uh, who suffer. We must be careful, though, um, not to reify uh, such an experience which is often expressed in somewhat concrete terms like the experience of the deathless, the experience of the unconditioned, the experience of one's original face. Such terminology can easily um, slip into believing there's something greater, transcendent, beyond that shines through. Uh, That's certainly not what the Buddha understood by these terms. We have to remember that his, uh, his teaching style very often adopted terminology from his culture uh, or the culture of uh, his, um, you know, those who were competing for attention in the religious and philosophical world of that time. And he turns these ideas around uh, from being states into being processes. So when he talks of uh, the unconditioned, which I suspect at his time was a term used to refer to God, in other words, that which is not conditioned, he describes the unconditioned as the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, the absence of confusion. In other words, he turns a noun into a verb. Instead of the unconditioned, he says to live in a way that is unconditioned by greed and hatred, fear and confusion. And this is a standard device uh, to turn these words, which could easily be the foundation for some sort of ontology, this is the nature of reality, and we need to understand it in order to be enlightened. And, but he breaks with that way of thinking in turning these ideas into, um, into processes to live unconditioned by. The deathless is not literally some state or space in which there is no death, in which you never die, eternal life, immortality. But rather the deathless for the Buddha means um, to live a life that is no longer under the sway or the control, or the imperatives of Mara. Mara means the demonic, and literally Mara means the killer, or the inner death that freezes us and disables us from actually participating in the stream of life itself. 
the way in which the, um, <clears throat> the early texts describe this experience is with the metaphor um, of entering a stream. Um, if we put it in the, the language of our four tasks, the first task of embracing uh, fully the condition we find ourselves in now, both personally, communally, collectively, planetarily, if you wish, is one that begins to subvert the uh, habitual reactive tendencies in which we are primed to just live a life wherein I get what I want and get rid of what I don't like. Clearly the legacy of our biological inheritance, our survival uh, strategies that have worked so well to get us to where we are now. And that falling away or that dropping off of such uh, habitual uh, habits of mind lead to moments of stillness, uh, lead to moments of what I'm now calling uh, a kind of radiant equanimity, but not as the end of the process, but as its beginning. And that beginning is called sotapati in Pali, which means entering the stream. And the stream is a metaphor for the Eightfold Path itself. So in other words, one uh, begins uh, to open up to the possibility by, by touching this groundless ground within oneself to find another way to live and operate and to function in this world. When the Buddha uh, describes what he means by stream entry, um, there are in fact a number of, of definitions, but the one that's most prominent in the early texts um, is, is one which, dis, which thinks of stream entry really as a reorientation of one's core values and commitments. Uh, one who has entered the stream, entered this way of life, is one who is committed to the value of living an awake life, awakening, Buddha, which is what the word means. Such a person is likewise committed to following the path of the Dharma, Dharma meaning here not so much the teachings, but rather the practice itself, the path itself, a commitment to the uh, creating and the unfolding of such a path. And such a person is also one who is committed to uh, living within a network of friendships and relationships that support that process, that mutually support that process, which is called sangha or community. And these are called the three, the, 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 the three values or the three jewels uh, in, in traditional Buddhism. And the term the Buddha uses um, is not, uh, sometimes it's translated as faith, but the word, in fact, is avecha pasado, which means something like lucid confidence or trust. Lucid confidence in the capacity we have to live in an awake way. Lucid confidence in our capacity to live um, according to uh, the principles and the practices of the, of the Dharma. And a lucid confidence and trust in those who are similarly committed um, who support us and as we support them in the process of creating a community. But in addition to this, at least in, in some texts, not all of them, he also adds that uh, such a person is committed to a life of generosity, of dana, of generosity. Now, this image too, I think, uh, suggests a solar understanding. Because the sun, and we understand this now far better than they would have done at the Buddha's time, the sun is in a process of nuclear uh, fusion in which it is uh, constantly giving itself away. It's burning up. Um, and we know that in 
fortunately a long, long time in the future, it will literally burn out. It'll become a dead star after, I think, having become a red or white dwarf or both or neither, I don't know. But the point is that the sun um, becomes, therefore, an image not just of heat and light, of love, of compassion, of wisdom, of intelligence, but also, and perhaps preeminently in some way, um, a metaphor of generosity, of self-giving. So in some senses, um, this Eightfold Path, this way of life, is one in which we commit ourselves to giving ourselves away. And that means, you know, the simple acts of generosity that we might engage in to support someone who's in trouble or difficulty. But I think more than anything else, it's a, a life in which we try uh, to counter the tendency not to give, the tendency to sort of hold back, to hesitate, uh, to be preoccupied with consolidating and preserving my my space or my place as opposed to trying to lead a life um, in which we are there for others we are there for the world again it might sound a bit idealistic but nonetheless I think what it's pointing to is something that I'm sure many of us um, might aspire to uh, a life of generosity a life in which we somehow leave a legacy in the world of what we have done, of what we have thought, of what we have said, that hopefully um, is a legacy for the good. And all of this, I feel, um, might nowadays be described as a a pragmatic program for human flourishing. In other words, this model of embracing dukkha, letting go of craving, uh, experiencing the stopping of that craving momentarily, and then cultivating a way of life, uh, is a way of describing how a human life can, can optimize what it is capable of becoming and doing. It's very much a vision of a process that's ongoing. I think of it as a sort of constant feedback loop rather than thinking of one's practice as aimed at achieving some state of enlightenment, some mystical or transcendent uh, insight in which we achieve um, a privileged Uh, religious or spiritual understanding, which is often how enlightenment is described. But what it seems to be the case here is that the Buddha has left behind the idea of achieving any kind of state or any kind of place that is permanent and acknowledges that uh, a flourishing life is one that is constantly engaging and responding to the uh, fluctuations of the world, both what are going on inside ourselves, what what is going on in our social environment, our political environment, our economic environment, in our relationships with others. And it's a constant process in which we sometimes find ourselves um, acting wisely and generously and lovingly and sometimes getting it all wrong and failing and having to pick ourselves up, hopefully having learned something and starting again. Now, this view of uh, looking at at Buddhism or the Dharma um, dispenses with the metaphysics um, of uh, ancient India, of ideas about rebirth and nirvana being the end of rebirth, and everything being driven by the inexorable forces of karma. And we just leave that aside. And I feel that in many ways what is distinctive in the Buddha's teaching are precisely those elements that it does not have in common with Hinduism, with Jainism. And I feel that in many ways the core of this distinction uh, 
lies in this process that I've been trying to articulate. But once we leave, uh, once we can let go, or we can try to think of this practice as one that's not tied to an Indian worldview, then we may discover that this practice has family resemblances with elements from within our own culture. And I'd like to just give a couple of examples of how we might uh, understand this process um, of Elsa embracing, letting go, stopping, acting, uh, living like a son, S-U-N, um, in terms of um, uh, two figures, one, uh, Piero of Ellis, and the other, John Keats. Now, I know you've all heard of John Keats, but probably you may not all be familiar with Piero of Ellis. Piero of Ellis, Ellis is in one of the islands in the Aegean, um, accompanied uh, Alexander to India. Uh, they arrived in India in 325 BC. And that was actually only 75 years after the Buddha's death. They uh, got as far as uh, what is now Pakistan, and the army didn't rebel at that point and didn't go further into the subcontinent. But it's very likely, again there is evidence in the Pali Canon, that Buddhism was actually uh, already beginning to be established in that part of India. Um, this is the text from Diogenes Laetius, who's the primary source we have for many of these Hellenistic philosophers. He says, Piro of Ellis was first a painter. Later he studied under Anaxarchus, who was another Greek philosopher, and accompanied him elsewhere with the result that he associated with the naked philosophers in India and with the Magi, in other words, the uh, the teachers of Zoroastrianism in Persia. He seems to have practiced philosophy, and again, this is not modern academic philosophy, but philosophy as a way of life, in a most noble way, introducing that form of it which consists in not knowing and suspension of judgment. Now, these, of course, are ideas that are hardly strange to the practice of Zen. The other fragment that uh, we have which describes the, word, the, the, the teaching of Piro comes from a, a fellow called Aristocles, I don't know who he is, and he's quoted by one of the early church fathers. Piro of Ellis, it says, left nothing in writing, again, like the Buddha, like Socrates. But his pupil Timon says that whoever wants to be happy must consider three questions. How are things by nature? What is this? What attitude should we have towards them? And what will result from having such an attitude? According to Timon, Piero declared that things are equally indifferent, which is like equanimity, unmeasurable, cannot pin them down, cannot fix them, and undecidable. In other words, we, again, another word for uh, we cannot ever know for sure what it is. It's an, an, it's an anti-ontological approach. Therefore, neither our sensations nor our opinions tell us either truths or falsehoods. In other words, suspension of judgment, not jumping to conclusions and to fixed ideas. Very similar to asking the question, what is this? When you ask yourself, what is this? You are implicitly saying or acknowledging, I don't know what this is. And you rest in that unknowing and in that questioning, which seems very similar to what is being practiced by Puro. And the text goes on, we should be without judgment, without preference, and unwavering, saying about each thing that it no more is than is not, 
or both is and is not, or neither is or is not. In other words, whether we decide that things exist or don't exist, or both exist and neither exist, or the other way around, that's going to, in a sense, trap us or lock us into a position that will obscure and perhaps cut us off from the fluidity and the contingency of life itself. Now this particular passage is of course what is technically called the tetralemma, the fourfold dilemma, the four lemma, which we find in, in, in the Pali Canon, we find it in Nagarjuna, and a number of scholars feel that this is actually quite strong evidence that Piro drew his teaching from those of the Buddha. And the result, for those who adopt this attitude, says Timon, will first be aphatos, speechlessness or wordlessness, and then untroubledness, ataraxia. Now, ataraxia, untroubledness, sounds very, very close to what we're talking of as nirvana. So, this is a term, ataraxia, we find not only in Pyrrho, we find it in Epicurus, we find it in Lucretius, we find it in the Stoics. This was the goal of a great deal of ancient Greek practical philosophy. It was to achieve a state of mind in which we are untroubled. The passage I quoted a couple of talks ago, the Buddha describes nirvana where we neither experience grief nor suffering within our own minds. But once again, the experience of ataraxia is not the end of the process, but its beginning. And this is illustrated by quite a famous little story that concerns the Greek painter Apelles. Um, it comes from the writings of a fellow called Sextus Empiricus, who was a later uh, follower, a Roman follower of Pyrrho. And Apelles was trying to paint the flecks of foam on a running horse. And he just couldn't do it. He got the horse all right, but he couldn't get the flecks of foam, you know, that it casts as it runs. And so in frustration, he picked up the sponge he was using to wipe clean his brushes and he threw it at the painting and achieved the effect he wanted. (laughs) He got the flecks of foam just right. And the explanation for this is because he was acting out of a state of ataraxia, uh, of of a kind of stillness and untroubledness, which doesn't fit terribly well with the idea of him being frustrated, but let's leave that aside for the time being. But it's it's interesting that this is how an ataraxic person responds. And it's, again, very, very close to many stories uh, in Zen where the moment of insight, the moment of awakening uh, comes as a spontaneous utterance. Suddenly you're no longer deliberating like the guy who, could, who wanted to know about the true person of no status. But you just utter, you shout, you speak uh, without any premeditation or any conception of uh, what it is that you know you want to say or how you want to impress others or whatever so there's a kind of spontaneity here uh, and again this is a language we find very much in zen um, not only in in zen meditation but also in in many of the arts that are associated with zen buddhism calligraphy um, brush painting Uh, tea ceremony, Uh, all of these are ways of 
um, of, of, of creatively expressing your understanding from a still, quiet, open uh, mind, which is unconditioned by egoism, by greed, and by hatred. Now, jumping ahead 2,000 years, we come to John Keats, the English Romantic poet. And in one of his letters to his brother George, um, he mentions only this one time a term he seems to have invented himself, uh, negative capability. Um, And I'm just going to read out how Keats uh, defines negative capability. He says, negative capability, which Shakespeare possessed so enormously, that is, when a man is able to rest in uncertainty and doubt without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. That is actually pretty much the best description I've come across of the practice of what is this. But Keats knew zero about Buddhism, Zen, none of those things uh, were remotely known in the early 19th century when he was writing. He was writing about 1820. The only term that might be a little odd is irritable reaching after. But in fact, the word irritable at that time didn't mean slightly pissed off. Um, It meant reflexive. A limb was irritable. And remember that Keats was trained as a surgeon. A limb was irritable if when it's tapped, it automatically jumps reflexively. So in other words, this irritable reaching after fact or reason is actually this automatic, uh, reflexive jumping after something. So when you ask, what is this? Rather than being able to rest in uncertainty and doubt, you have an irritable reaching after fact or reason. In other words, an uncontrollable, reflexive latching on to something that feels secure and, uh, and, 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 and clear in some way. So again, for Keats, as is clear from this passage, negative capability is not an end in itself any more than ataraxia is an end in itself, any more than nirvana is an end in itself, but rather it's the source of another kind of way to respond to the world. So for Keats, the great model of his, um, of his uh, literary um, life was that of Shakespeare. And for him, Shakespeare had this extraordinary capacity, and he actually says it in so many words, he says, to be without a self and to allow all of these characters, all of these stories, to simply pour forth from his pen. And Keats understood that as Shakespeare's negative capability. The great thing about this term negative capability, on the one hand, it negates something, Greed, hatred, delusion, egoism, and so on. But that is not just a blank absence, but releases a source of creativity and imagination. Now again, creativity and imagination are not words you'll find in the Pali canon. In fact, I think it's only really in in, in, in East Asian Buddhism, that you even have an acknowledgement of the value of artistic work. But nonetheless, I feel that such terms are very appropriate when we understand how the Buddha described the Eightfold Path as a task to be performed. And the nature of that task was to cultivate the path the path, the maga, is to be bhavetta bam, to be cultivated. 
So it's not as though you, when you enter the path, there it is lying in front of you and all you have to do is take a leisurely stroll down it. The path is actually a metaphor for a space within oneself, an unimpeded space in which you can move freely. That's really what a path is. And the word cultivate in Pali, bhavana, literally means to bring into being. To bring into being. Which, of course, means to create. To bring something into being is to create something. So the path, this way of life, is something that we are challenged to constantly create. So there's a sense of creativity in how we think, how we speak, how we work, how we act, how we pay attention, how we focus our attention. This is a creative process, something that we bring into being. It's a, it's a way of, 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 of human flourishing, if we use that expression. And to conclude, I think to connect the um, idea of the four tasks with the uh, Zen tradition, um, I feel there's a very uh, striking overlap between the four tasks, embracing suffering, letting go of craving, experiencing the stopping of craving, and cultivating the path, to what are known as the four vows. Um, They're translated in different ways, but this is a version that I've come up with. The first Zen vow... And these are the bodhisattva vows, basically. Sentient beings are infinite. I vow to liberate them all. (coughs) Sentient beings are infinite. I vow to liberate them all. Liberate them from what? Suffering. Sentient beings could be translated suffering beings. And there's, I think, the great beauty of this formulation is that it acknowledges the, the deep paradox at the heart of this practice. If sentient beings are infinite, there's no way you can liberate them all. Impossible. But you vow to do so. So in other words, this is a way of articulating, fully embracing dukkha. But now it's turned into a vow. It's turned into a commitment to do something about it. To free people, including oneself, from suffering. The second vow. Defilements are inexhaustible. I vow to overcome them. But if defilements really are inexhaustible, there's nothing you can do about it. But you vow to overcome them. Defilements is just another piece of Buddhist technical jargon that is synonymous with craving, grasping, greed, hatred, etc., etc., So this clearly refers, I think, to the second task, letting go of craving. But now you vow to let go of it, even though it's inexhaustible. And as we understand the origins of craving in modern biology, craving is not just some sort of unfortunate accident of the mind but in fact it's deep down rooted in our reptilian brain stem. It's the very urge to survive and keep going um, as, as sentient creatures. The third vow. Dharma gates are innumerable. I vow to master them. <clears throat> now this might seem less transparent if it is equivalent to the third task of uh, experiencing the stopping of craving. But if you think about it, or at least if I think about it, um, there is a connection. Because what is a gate? It's uh, uh, far men. The gate of Dharma. A gate is a space. It's, It's a hole. It's an opening. And I think in the way that we might understand nirvana, that too is an opening. Once greed and hatred and delusion have have faded, 
that leaves an opening of possibility. Other options now become available. And those options, if we are committed to this kind of way of life, are options that accord with the Dharma. So in other words, each practice, like practicing Zen or mindfulness or whatever, is compared to a gate, an opening, um, a clear way through the situation we find ourselves confronted with rather than an obstacle, something that, that blocks us and stops us from being able to respond. And the fourth vow, the Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to accomplish it. M- maps very neatly onto um, the forced task of cultivating the Eightfold Path, which is the Buddha way. And I vow to accomplish it. So although on the surface um, one might not find a great deal in common with the the Chinese, Japanese, Korean forms of Buddhism known as Zen and the early Pali traditions which are unfortunately often thought of as a lesser vehicle. Here I think we can find many points of overlap and contact. And I would feel quite... uh, uh, you know, I felt quite unhesitatingly uh, feel that Zen is just another way of uh, articulating and practicing uh, the very principles that we find right back in the earliest um, stratum of the Buddha's teaching. So I'll stop there. Um, we've got about ten minutes. Um, if there are any questions, preferably people who haven't asked questions before. Yes, Kate. Um, I've never heard the four vows and the four truths connected like that before. Uh-huh. Is, that, is that your idea or is that commonly? <laughs> no, it's definitely not commonly. Uh, no, this is something that I've worked on over the years. Um, and uh, the original inspiration for this way of thinking about the four truths came when I read the work of an English, an Englishman who became a monk in Sri Lanka in the late 40s after the Second World War, a man called Nyanga Viratera. And um, it was through him that I first got the idea that the, uh, the four noble truths were actually what he calls the ultimate tasks for a person's accomplishment. And he pointed out how, in fact, that's how they're presented. They are presented as tasks to perform. He gave me that idea. He pointed that out, let's say. It's there in the the original. Um, And then it seemed to follow from that that these tasks are somehow interlinked. They're not just you do one and then you do another, then you do another, and they're somehow disconnected, but they, they form part of an interconnected process of practices. Um, so that's, I suppose, my understanding of it that I've been working on. Um, and uh, I'm going to post on the board um, tomorrow morning um, a link, a text which gives a link to an article I've published recently in an academic journal uh, called A Secular Buddhism, which, which unpacks this in, 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 in quite a lot of detail. So if you want to look at that, you can, uh, you can look it up, up online. Yes? Uh, you mentioned before the, 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 um, <clears throat> the, the Buddha, before becoming Buddha, may have studied at the University of Taxima. Uh-huh. <clears throat> um, I, I wonder whether as Taxima was in the orbit of, of classical Greece, whether he picked up some of these ideas of uh, Apollo, the sun god, Helios, those sort of things there. Um, yeah, I, in, in, the, in the appendix to my last book, I, I, there's a little essay in which I say, did the Buddha study at Taxila? And Taxila 
uh, as you rightly say, was on the far west of where the Buddha lived. I mean, it was about 700 miles from Sakya. Uh, it's in near the modern Pakistan city of um, Rawalpindi. And at the Buddha's time, it was already the great center of learning of that of, of, of the Indian subcontinent. And it was also, at the Buddha's time, um, incorporated into the Persian Empire. It was incorporated into uh, by Cyrus I, I think, in about 40 years before the Buddha's birth, the Persian armies invaded and took over Gandhara, the, the western, you know, that... And that became the easternmost province of the Persian Empire. And we know that there were Greeks there, both from Buddhist sources. Uh, the Buddha mentions Greeks once in the Pali Canon. And we also know it from uh, Greek and Persian sources as well. So Taxila was a very cosmopolitan place. Um, but uh, I don't think um, we need look there for the Buddha's... Um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, worship of the sun uh, that was already uh, well established in, in the Gangetic uh, Basin as far as we know e even in Vedic times which goes back a long period before that and also as I mentioned it's, it's characteristic of pretty much all agrarian societies that the sun is raised up to that status but of course it's possible that he found a confirmation for that um, in the Greek thought, uh, it's a very tempting idea. But, of course, there's no way we can either prove or disprove it. We just don't know. Uh, it's also curious that when the Greeks came to represent the Buddha in a human form, they chose the god Apollo, who's also associated with the sun. Uh, Epicurus, too, is praised by Lucretius as being like the sun. So we find this solar imagery right through. And it could well have been, I think, in that time, uh, uh, a very compelling image that was maybe um, uh, being explored and developed, not just by the Buddha, but perhaps by other figures of that period. Uh, and who knows where he may have got these influences from? We don't know. But it's, it's certainly a possibility. Yes, and then the... Taoism and Buddhism. Well, I mean, I think there are enormous resonances between Taoism and Buddhism, and particularly Zen Buddhism. One could almost say that Zen Buddhism. You, you could call it Zen Buddhism, you could call it Buddhist Taoism. I think that you can almost interchangeably think it that way. And in the early period of Chan Buddhism, um, the works of Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu were considered to have the canonical status of the Buddhist texts. The Zen monks would quote Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu as readily as they would the Buddha. And the Taoists actually believed, although this came along quite some centuries later, that when Lao Tzu had composed the Tao Te Ching, um, he then, he, he also left China. And the Taoists then believed that he went to India and became the teacher of the Buddha. And I think they're saying that, you know, again, it, there was a lot of competition between the Taoists and the Buddhists in China, and eventually they split very much apart. But I think originally they must have been very aware that there is a you know that there are you know striking similarities between these ways of life but there's no evidence whatsoever that there were connections between the buddha in india and lao tzu in china even though they were more or less contemporaries but there were not simply did not exist the channels of communication that would have allowed any uh, awareness of one another it's a feature of what is often called the axial age. That um, there was there were the Zoroaster, Socrates, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, all quite you know distant one from the other, possibly not knowing anything about each other, 
probably not knowing anything about each other, and yet coming up with kind of similar ways of thinking. And I suspect it's because at that time in the evolution of human uh, culture and economics and, and so on, that people were undergoing similar transformations in their societies that gave rise to similar sorts of questions about what human life is. And so it's not surprising in a way that the, you know, the, the, the most intelligent people in those societies started thinking along similar lines. Um, but again, I mean, Taoism, Tao means path. And so, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Buddha path is the Buddha Tao in Chinese, the, uh, the four Tao. Um, when the Chinese first translated Buddhist texts into Chinese, they used Taoist terminology. They, and Nirvana was translated as Wu Wei, you know, non-action, non-activity. Uh, and I think there was an enormous kind of, um, uh, you know, sympathies between the two. When, when the first Buddhist monks went to China, the Taoist monks were the ones who were interested in what they had to say because they were doing yogic practices, meditation, breath awareness. It's all very much part of the same sort of broad culture. Because mm-hmm. um, most introductions of Buddhist ethics books mm. start out talking about the significance of the Buddha's reinterpretation of the doctrine of karma's intention. Mm-hmm. So, are you saying that it's possible he might not, in his world, he might not have been aware of a kind of religious doctrine of karma? Well, I'm afraid it's a little more complicated than that. Um, the, the idea of karma could well have actually come more from the Jains than the Buddha, the, the, than the Brahmins. I think that if any tradition really, if the Buddha was really, in a sense, reacting against an Indian tradition, he was reacting more against Jainism. And Jainism, uh, again, is agreed now by scholars um, to be a tradition that the way predated the Buddha. Although the Buddha was a contemporary with Mahavira, who's considered the founder of Jainism, Mahavira saw himself as the 24th in a line, a succession of teachers, the previous one having been a fellow called Parshva. And Parshva um, is now accepted as probably an historical figure who lived about 250 years before the Buddha and Mahavira. And Parshva's teaching seems to have already um, been founded on the idea that the purpose of, um, of, of, of spiritual life is to get rid of all karma, Karma just means action. And the idea of the Jain ascetic practice is to stop acting and thereby achieve liberation of your Atman, your soul. So it could have been that Brahmanism was actually influenced by Jainism there. It's true that um, in Gombrich's work, for example, and you may be picking it up from his book, What the Buddha Thought, is that the Buddha does take the idea of karma not just as an action that weighs you down and keeps you stuck on this wor- in this world, but he saw it as uh, ethical intention. Now, whether he, got, whether he was re- reinterpreting Jainism or Brahmanism, we don't really know. Possibly both. Because we, although the Buddha did not grow up in a Brahminical culture, he was probably aware of at least one of the Upanishads the uh, Brajaranika Upanishad, which on its own internal evidence was an Upanishad that was composed in the area where he taught. So um, it's likely that he does critique Brahmanism, not because Brahmanism is the, is, the, is the official religion, but because Brahmanism is one of his competitors. It's one of the movements of religious thinking that was coming to prominence at that time. And he took issue with that as he took issue with Jainism, as he took issue with the Ajivakas and other schools of religion that never survived. So that's how I would look at that. But I do think the key point is that he ethicizes the notion of action from being just bodily or or, or, or acts of body and speech, or in some senses, karma as simply sacrificial activity. 
and understands it primarily as what moves you to think and speak and act. And that's where the source of ethics then lies. That is certainly a a central contribution of the Buddha to to Indian and to to human uh, thinking. Uh, But exactly out of which context that arose, Brahmanism, Jainism, or neither or both, we don't really know. Okay, have to stop here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.